Um, a man with leprosy, verse 40, Mark 1, verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him, that's Jesus, and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go and offer Go and show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. And Father God, as we do come to your word this morning, we ask that you would Help me to communicate just what you have been putting on my heart over the last few days. Um, Help me to speak with clarity, conviction, compassion. And and just may Jesus be communicated in a way that lives are transformed because it's only your gospel that changes us. And as we prepare to come to communion this morning, help us to really center on the sacrifice of Christ for greater love has no man than this, and he lays down his life for his friends. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, like I said, we got in at about 2, 2.30 this morning. I was awake probably about 4.35 and got up because all my notes were on my iPad and I realized that no sermon. Um, and, uh, and I suddenly sort of thought, you know, a few weeks ago people were saying, Craig, when you come home from holidays, don't preach that Sunday. I, I, I don't know if that's a call, you know. I don't know if they were being caring or or whatever, or they just didn't want me up here. And at the time, it seemed like a really good idea to come back and preach because I don't like being away too long. But as you get closer to the time, i.e. this morning and last night, it didn't seem such a great idea anymore. I've got to be honest. The thing is that things look different from a distance than they do up close. Have you ever discovered that? The distance creates distortion. Difference our distance distorts reality. So I'm here this morning, and then tomorrow we're moving house, and uh, it's the first house that, it's the church rectory that's been purchased. It's the first house that we haven't been renting in seven years. And so we're so deeply, deeply thankful for the church for providing a rectory for us at this time. But little did I know we'd be doing it tomorrow when we booked our holiday to come back today. And then a year ago, or about 14, 15 months ago, I got a call from Youth for Christ saying, would I lead a retreat for all the Northern Ireland staff last November? I said no, because we'd just moved here. Then they called me a few days later and said, will you do it next November 2018? I couldn't think of an excuse at that point. You know, I couldn't say I have something in my diary for a year later. And so I've booked to go to a somewhere up the North Coast on Wednesday night, Thursday and Friday morning to lead a retreat and I've absolutely no idea what I'm doing. But uh, at the time a year ago, it felt like a great idea. But distance distorts reality. And as you get up closer, have you ever done that? Said yes to something? Now, if it's your marriage, don't, you know, um, <laughs> don't look, just smile. Um, but we do, we, we say yes to things and then as the time gets closer, because we like to say yes, we don't like to say no, it's awkward to say no. Uh, and then as the time gets closer, we realize I really shouldn't have, have done that, um, because distance distorts reality. 
Things look different from a distance. You know, as we were flying into Belfast last night at some ungodly hour, distance distorts reality because you just see the lights and you see the city and it all looks lovely and then you land and you realize it's different than that. You know, distance distorts people. You know, uh, you see people from a distance and then you get up close to them and they can be different. You see people from from maybe television or media or somebody famous and then you get to know them and you realize they're different when you get to know them. For those of you who, when you were single, single, remember this was before you were married, when you were driving along and you'd see somebody and you'd go, wow, who are they? And then you'd get up close and you'd go, hello. Because distance distorts, just blame jet lag, distance distorts reality. Dis- dif- distance distorts our words as well. You remember Chinese whispers you played as a kid? It started off that Johnny uh, bought a new boat and by the uh, time he got here, Johnny was building a nuclear weapon to destroy nation. Uh, and, you know, like we had a situation recently where I have been teaching Elijah about bullies a bit and just, you know, how to deal with bullies. And they were doing a thing in school a few weeks ago and they, they were talking about bullies and uh, Elijah's in P2 and they said, so Elijah, what do you do? They did this whole lesson, you know, about telling the teacher and, and everything. And They said, Elijah, so what do you do if you're bullied? And he said, well, my daddy said you warn him once and you punch him in the nose. <laughs> this wasn't it. And then when he bends down from the punch in the nose, you kick him in the face. Now, I, I, I mean, I'm not saying I didn't teach him that, but it was slightly different terms than that, you know. It was if you're protecting a girl or somebody smaller than you, or if you've warned the bully, if you don't. But distance distorted reality. And uh, they said, so what does your daddy do? And uh, I said his name is Jim U. Pritchard. Um, <laughs> distance distorts reality. And then you get up close, and it's different. You know, we live in a world that's more connected than ever. We're connected by this. We're connected by the internet. We're connected in so many ways. And yet we live in a world that as we get more connected, we get more distant from each other. Have you noticed that? That actually this becomes a substitute for this. That you are meant to connect more, but it actually creates more distance. That in and trying to have as many Facebook and social media friends, we actually end up with less real friends. And it's a real concern because if this is my generation, which I didn't have a mobile phone until I was 23, I think, um, my son's already asking for it. And I said, in 12 years, you'll get one son. Um, start saving. And, uh, but, but I, I, I just, I, I dread to think in 10 years, how kids are going to communicate. Will kids actually be able to have a face-to-face conversation? Because so much of our lives is spent communicating, not face-to-face, but through emojis and words that aren't spelled right and text messages uh, and, 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 and FaceTime, and, but not face-to-face communication. We're digitally connected, but we're physically and emotionally Distant. And today we're going to read about a man who had to keep his distance. It's a familiar story. But as I studied it this week, one, I wanted to take another break from Revelation because I felt like I was still in the tribulation. Uh, and two, um, I just, I really felt drawn to this story this week. And uh, I've been working on it in the holidays. But uh, let's look at Mark 1, verse 40. Mark 1, verse 40. 
A man with leprosy came to him, that's to Jesus, and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. What do we know about this man? We don't know his name. We don't know his age. We don't know if he had a wife and kids. We know nothing about him. The only thing we know about him is his condition, that he had leprosy. He was defined by his disease. He was labeled by his issue. And sometimes we do that. We do that with other people and we do that in our own lives. We label people according to not their real identity, but according to their issue. We don't call them Bob or Frank or Paul. We call them alcoholic. We don't say that such and such is ill. We call them, uh, you know, somebody who's, or we don't call them by their name. We say that they're handicapped or they're, they're in a wheelchair or, or they've, or they've got cancer or, or we, we label them by their ailment. We label them by their, their issue. We don't say that maybe somebody had a difficult time. Susan had a difficult time. We call her a victim. We label her by her issue. We don't say that someone experiences same-sex attraction. We, They or we would say they're gay, they're homosexual. And I think that's one of the biggest issues around that is that actually your label does not define you. Your condition does not consume your true identity because every single man and woman, no matter what their la- what their label is, what their issue is, their identity and their position is this, that they are men and women created in the image of a loving God. And so we need to be so careful as we look at people to see beyond the labels, to see beyond the conditions, to see beyond the things that externally seem to define them and actually get to know them. You know, some issues are easier to hide than others. I always say about some people and sometimes about myself, I don't have issues. I've got a subscription. You know, I have more issues than the Beto sometimes, I think. Sometimes I joke that I've got more baggage than Heathrow Terminal too. But, uh, but we, 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 we all have issues. You have issues. You just hide them better. You see, if you come in here with a broken leg, you get sympathy. If you come in here with a broken mind or a broken heart, people think, what's wrong with you? Some issues are harder to hide and some are easier to hide. You could come in here with a disease and you'd get pity. You come in here with pride and we can't see it. And so some of the issues we spend our time trying to hide. Because pride is easier to hide than the guy lying drunk in the street. And so we have this condition. What is it? It's a man with leprosy. Leprosy comes from the Greek word lepros. And you know what that means? Scaly. Because it, it's, it, it, it caused your skin to become scaly. I'm going to put some of you off your Sunday lunch. I know that here. But uh, leprosy was a skin condition and it started small. It started normally on your cheek or your ear or somewhere in your face or maybe your forehead as just a slight discoloration. Something slightly went whitey-pinky. And and as soon as you looked in the mirror and saw that, you began to panic. And in Jesus' day, leprosy was a death sentence. Today we call it Hansen's disease. One to two million people now have it, but it is now treatable. 
It's caused by a bacteria which is incredibly contagious. And the Old Testament was very clear about what, how we should deal with leprosy. Leviticus 13, if you want to read Leviticus 13 at some stage, it's not one I would recommend for bedtime reading for your kids. It's not going to be a fridge magnet in your house. It reads more like a, 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 a what do you call it, a dermatology a manual than a devotional reading. But it goes through all these different skin conditions. Let me, let me read it. Leviticus 13, 45, 46. What we should, what somebody with leprosy had to do. Anyone with such a defiling disease must, must wear torn clothes. So that was the first sign of identity. Let their hair be unkempt. Some of you do that anyway. Cover the lower part of their face and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. And here's the bit I want you to see. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. So they had to tear their clothes. They left their head uncovered because the discoloration would show and it would warn people. You had to announce yourself from a distance because it was so highly contagious. And so with with something so contagious, you wanted to warn people not to get too close. Because if you get too close, you might get what they've got. We were, when we were away, there was a family, well, a mother and her two kids from inner city Dublin. And, uh, oh, I'm trying to think. Um, how to explain them. They They were... They were a bit wild, let's just say. And uh, we all know that as parents. That as, as if, if, you, if you have kids, you are very careful who they spend time with, don't you? Particularly in that younger formative stage because you know that what's on their friends rubs off on them. That actually there's character traits and values that are contagious. And uh, Becky was getting a bit stressed as she watched Elijah play with these two mini terrorists. And, uh, like, seriously, you have no idea. Um, and she wondered why I was so unfazed. And I said, and then she looked at me and went, you were them when you were that age, weren't you? And I went, kind of. I was kind of the one that parents went, don't play with him. And so I was totally unfazed by the whole thing. But she was just concerned that Elijah would pick up some of their F-bombs that they were dropping as four-year-olds and seven-year-olds, uh, as you do. But uh, but we're very wary of contagious things. Again, if you have kids at this time of year, they go into school and they're bound to come home with some sort of flu, cold, disease, rash, whatever it is. Because in a classroom, those things just go round. And, 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 and so this guy was contagious. The bacteria attacked his nerves on the skin and then beneath the skin and it numbed his feeling. The nerve damage meant that he experienced no pain. It anesthetized him. So it wasn't so much that his body was in pain. You know what the biggest problem with leprosy was? You could feel nothing. You could literally lose a limb, cut off a finger, and you wouldn't feel a thing. And many of them bled to death because of that. I heard one story about a guy who couldn't open a door, and he called somebody else over, and they turned the key and turned the key and turned the key, and eventually they opened the door, and he couldn't believe it. But he had actually 
basically ripped his whole fingers off, but he couldn't feel a thing because he had leprosy. It numbed all the feelings in your body. And you were losing parts of your body without realizing it. Your eyebrows and eyelashes would disappear. Then spongy tumors would swell and grow in your face and body. And then the bacteria would rot parts of your body, your eyes, your ears. You'd be left blind. It was a physical condition. But worse than the emotional, worse than the physical condition, because you actually couldn't feel the pain, was the emotional pain. Because look at what it says again in in, in, uh, Leviticus 13. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. They were quarantined. And we read this, but we don't actually realize the implications of this. Imagine you're a dad. You've just had a new baby. And you look down one day and this lump, this rash appears in your skin. And others begin to notice it and suddenly you have to live away from your wife and your newborn child. Imagine being put outside the camp. Nobody wants to go near you. And as you go anywhere, you have to make a noise, even ring a bell and shout, unclean, unclean. See, every other disease that Jesus healed was healed. Leprosy was cleansed. Jesus never healed lepers. He cleansed lepers because you were seen as unclean. So there was a physical ailment. There was the emotional pain of being separated and isolated from others. And then there was also a religious stigma. It was seen that if you had leprosy, you'd possibly have been cursed by God. And so there was a physical, emotional, and religious stigma attached to it as well. No one could touch you, and you couldn't touch anyone. And depending on the direction of the wind, you had to keep from 10 to 150 feet away from the public. You know, I was in Baltimore in 1995. I was 19. I went over to do that Camp America program in Maryland. and We went to Baltimore one Saturday. And uh, I remember it so clearly. We were walking across this bridge in Baltimore and there was a guy begging there. And I stopped and gave him a few dollars and I sat down beside him and I said, tell me your story. And he told me he had AIDS. And remember this is 1995. Like AIDS is a little bit more... There's a little bit less fear with it now, but this was 1995, and there was a huge amount of fear. And he said he ended up in the street because everybody had disowned him and isolated him, because they were terrified. And after chatting him for a while, I said, look, can I pray with you for a moment? And he said, yeah, you can pray with me. And he didn't realize it, but I put my hand on the back of his neck, and he jumped. And I said, I'm sorry. I thought maybe he had some pain. He jumped, and and I said, I'm sorry. I hope I haven't hurt you. And he said, no. He said, for two years, nobody has touched me. For two years, nobody has touched me. And greater than the physical isolation, sometimes it's just the lack of people wanting to go near you. We have untouchables in our society. In the synagogue or the temple, in the early stages, you had to stay behind a curtain. You had to stay behind a screen. And the priest would go and make sure you weren't too contagious. You had to hide your shame and your illness and your issue behind a screen. And it got me thinking about how much we hide behind a screen today. A different screen. 
a 5.7 inch screen in our pockets. We hide behind it in social media, in Instagram, in, in Facebook. We hide behind a screen and we present our best selves to the world. We take 47 selfies just to get a decent picture. Then we filter it. We face tune it. We get rid of the wrinkles. We do everything else. And then we post it. I'm just out of bed. No makeup. And everybody in your family is like, you've taken 14 hours to take one photo. Let's see how many likes you get. Let's see how many people like it. Do you know, I saw a reading recently that Kim Kardashian was starting to get carpal tunnel because she was taking so many selfies. But we present this image to the world. We present our best selves. And we we want the world to think one way about us. But if they could only get up close, if they could only bridge that distance, they would realize that I have issues. And you have issues. Do you know what? Every one of us has issues. We just hide them really well. It's not the spots on our skin. It's the stuff in our souls. I have realized that, and you know what, for me this has been a huge relief and a huge liberation, is that you have issues, and I have issues. Imagine, I mean, this man had spots on his skin. Imagine if you walked in here with a sign around your neck, and we could all see your issue. But we hide them so well. But you know what, you have issues and I have issues. I was going to get you to turn to your neighbor and say, what's your issue? But some of you might actually tell them, and then people might move. So they're behind this screen. And I was near going to preach an entire sermon about how we hide behind screens. You know, I took one photo yesterday and put it on Instagram. I was lying by the pool and I took this photo and I realized that my fungal toenail was in it. True story. And I wanted to go back in and, and, sorry, too much information, but I'm tired. I've had two hours sleep. And I wanted to go back in and, and whiten that nice toenail to make it perfect. Because I don't want people to see this yellow, yucky toenail. There you go. Because we want to present the best sales to the world. We don't want people to see our fungal toenails. We don't want people to see our imperfections. We don't want people to see our flaws. We don't want people to see the things we struggle with. We try to hide our issues. We create an image to hide our issues. Halloween is over, but a lot of us are still wearing masks, and we wear them all year round, because we don't want people to see who we really are. We hide behind success, education, extroversion, our personalities, humor, sarcasm, cynicism, looks, position, title. Read about a woman who died of a heart attack. Or she, sorry, she has a heart attack. Yeah, and during this she dies and she meets God. And she says to God, will I die? And no God replied you will live for another 40 years two months and eight days at this instant she snapped back to life after the heart attack she's thinking well if 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 I've, if I've escaped death if i've beaten death i'm going to make the most of the next 40 years two months and eight days so she gets a facelift she gets liposuction she gets a tummy tuck She changes the color of her hair. She looks completely different. And after her final surgery, she walks out and gets hit by a car and dies. And she goes up to heaven and she is furious. She's steaming. What was that? She asked. God says, what? You died. 
The woman says, you said I would live another 40 years. And God thought for a moment, I didn't recognize you. This man wasn't supposed to come close to Jesus. He was meant to stay at a safe distance. You could look at him. He was at the advanced stages of leprosy. Luke 5 actually says he was full of leprosy or he was covered in leprosy. In other words, it wasn't like he could hide it walking down the street. Every person he walked past would recognize that he had leprosy. He was jeopardizing his life just to get close to Jesus. How did he hear about Jesus? I, I don't know. But if you actually, if you have your Bible open, if you go up just a little bit in that passage in Mark, let me just read a few verses. Literally just before the one we're reading in Mark 1. Verse 32. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the second demon possessed. The whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He drove out many demons also, but he would not let the demons speak. So maybe this guy had heard about this, this wandering teacher who was healing everybody. Everywhere he went, demons would flee, diseases would be healed, and he thought, maybe if I can just bridge this distance, maybe, maybe I can be healed. He was going to die anyway. It's better to die trying than to die in isolation. He was desperate. And desperation will lead you to do things that you wouldn't normally do. He was willing to risk exposure. You see, God can't hide the person we pretend to be. He can only hide the person that we are. Or heal the person that we are. He can't heal the person you pretend to be. And you know what? Others can't love really the person you pretend to be. They can only love the person that you really are. Better to risk getting close and staying isolated and people never really knowing you. I was talking to somebody a while ago, another pastor in the area. And we were just talking about you know, people who have come here. and They mentioned a name and I'm not going to point or look. I'm going to look at the floor for a moment. But at the end we'll expose this person. No, um, and, they said, it's such, and I said, yeah, yeah, they're great. They're fantastic. And they said, yeah, they used to come to us and they've been in other churches. And they said, but here's the problem with that person. They stay for a while, but as soon as people start getting close to them, they can't handle it and they move on to another church. And I thought about that and I thought, how many of us feel like if people really knew who we were, if they really knew our issues, maybe they wouldn't love us. And yet as you get up close to people, here's what you find. One, they will probably still love you and two, their issues are just as bad as yours, if not worse. I want us to be a church that you can come with your issues. That you can come with whatever baggage you have. That you don't have to hide. That you can be vulnerable. That you can be transparent. That you can be open. And that you can receive love from a church family who accepts you as you are. So he starts moving towards Jesus. He's breaking every religious rule, but he's nothing to lose. He's refusing to live at a distance any longer. His skin might be defiled, but his soul is determined. And look what he does when he gets there. He falls on his knees. 
he falls on his knees. This is probably the most important thing he could do. You see, it's one thing to be around Jesus. It's a completely different thing to bow the knee to Jesus. There's many people who are around church and around Jesus, but they've never bowed the knee before Jesus and said, I come before you. You're my Lord. You're my God. You're my King. And until we do that, you can never be completely healed because being around Jesus is different than bowing the knee to Jesus. And it's only when you bow the knee and surrender and acknowledge that he is Lord, he is God, he is King, that he can really start healing those issues in your life. And look at what he says to Jesus. If you are willing, if you are willing, you can make me clean. What he's saying is, I know you can, I'm just not sure if you will. I know you could heal me. I'm not sure if you want to heal me. You know, many of us, we believe God can. We're not sure if he'll do it for us. We believe God can heal someone else. When it comes to us, we're not so sure. We'll pray for the sick and believe for them to be healed. But when we're praying for ourselves, we're just not sure of God. We know he can. We're just not sure if he will. We believe he's great, but we struggle sometimes with his goodness. We believe he's infinite, but we struggle with being intimate with him. We know that God loves the world. We're just not sure if he likes us. And look at what Jesus says. I am willing. I am willing. In John's gospel, we have the great I am statements. I am the door. I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the vine. I am, and you are the branches. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I want to give you another name for Jesus today. I am willing. Whatever you're coming to him with this morning, I want you to hear him say this. I am willing. I'm not just able. I'm willing. Let's look at the power of a touch. He was filled with compassion. Filled with compassion. Or the translation I read earlier, the NIV most updated version said indignant. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. See, the original NIV said filled or moved with compassion. Then when they came to retranslate it, and uh, probably 15 years ago, they changed it to indignant. Because they looked at the word and they realized that they'd maybe got it wrong. And indignant means this. It means angry, frustrated, upset. It literally means moved in his gut, moved in his bowels. He's so deep down annoyed. And he's moved with compassion. Which one is it? Is it compassion or is it indignant? I think it's both. Jesus looks at this man, he looks at the disformity on his skin, he looks at the isolation of his condition, and he is furious because he looks at this child made in the image of God, and he says, this is not the way it is supposed to be. Sin has marred creation, the fall has damaged everything, and this is not Jesus, the one who spoke and the world was created, looks at this guy and goes, that is not the way I created you to be. And he's deeply moved. 
He's angry. He feels pain. He feels the pain of a man who could no longer feel any pain. The man who was numb, who couldn't feel pain, Jesus feels pain for him. And he reached out his hand and he did the unthinkable. He touched him. He touched the man. How do you feel about touch? Some of us like personal space more than others. I'm a little bit claustrophobic. I always sit at the end of a row. On an airplane, you know what my worst nightmare is? The middle seat. Yeah? I will sell my son. I will give away my son to get a middle seat. It was so good on the way over. There were no aisle seats apart from two rows back. That was a lovely flight. I got an aisle seat. And I, li- I just, I hate feeling closed in. I'm claustrophobic. And I don't mind a hug. But I'm not a huge hugger. I love hugging people just to express love and compassion. But I'm not one of those people who just walks around hugging everyone. Some of you guys, some of you girls, you like hugging. Some of you are like, (laughs) personal distance. I'm always saying that with Elijah. He gets right up in your face. I'm like, personal space, son, personal space. Some of us like touch more than others. Appropriate touch. You know, touch is so important. They've said that babies who are touched and cuddled and held actually grow and develop much faster and become bigger than babies who don't. They've actually said that in in communicating with people, touch is ten times more important than just the words you say. They had kids who were deeply distressed. They did this research. I was just reading about it this morning. They did this research with kids who were really upset. 70 kids who were really upset. And they just spoke comfort to them. And only about six calmed down. When they hugged them and spoke comfort to them, about 66 out of the 70 calmed down. There's something about touch. There's something about feeling that affection. It releases actually chemicals. It releases oxytocin and endorphins. Happy hormones. And he touched the man. And notice what he didn't do. He didn't touch the man and get his little bottle of hand sanitizer out and then start cleaning his hands. He touched the man in his deep uncleanliness. And we see this in Jesus throughout the Gospels, don't we? Jesus touches people. Look at the next... Um, Matthew at fourteen fifteen. when Jesus came to Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her and the fever left her. Some people think that's why Peter denied Jesus, because he healed his mother-in-law. <laughs> Matthew 9, he touched their eyes. Matthew 20, he had compassion on them, he touched their eyes. Wherever he went... In the villages, towns, countryside, the places, sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let him touch even the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him. He went up and touched the coffin, which was not what you were supposed to do with a dead body. She came up behind him, the woman with the issue of blood who was unclean. She touched him. I'm so glad that we have a saviour who's not prudish. 
I often said that Bette Midler song from a distance is a lovely song, but it is a load of rubbish. Our God is not a God who watches us from a distance. Our God is a God who gets down close and touches us. He's not the light at the end of the tunnel. He's the light right in the tunnel with us. And whatever your mess is, he moves towards the mess. He doesn't back off from the mess. He reaches out and he touches that mess. And we'll see in a minute what happens. Look at verse 42. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Remember how contagious a disease this was. It was so contagious that if you were clean and you touched the unclean, you who were clean became unclean. But with Jesus, when the clean touches the unclean, the unclean is made clean. The power of Jesus is greater than the power of my sickness. The power of grace is more contagious than my sin. Whatever your issue is, the name of Jesus is above your issue and your issue must bow the knee in Jesus' presence. Jesus didn't catch what the man had. The man caught who Jesus is and that is righteousness and purity and wholeness. His grace is contagious and so I don't have to be afraid and ashamed to come into his presence. His grace is stronger than anything I could do. His grace is stronger than any sin I could commit. And that's why Hebrews 4.16 tells us this. Let us then approach the throne of grace. Not the throne of anger, not the throne of judgment, but the throne of grace with confidence, with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Why? Because just one touch from the king changes everything. One touch from the king changes everything. Let's finish up here now. We're nearly done. Verse 45. He began to talk freely, spreading the news. Jesus tells him not to, but he can't help it. Why? Because he used to be contagious with leprosy. Now he's contagious with the gospel. And he can't help it. Everywhere he goes, people go, are you not the guy who used to have the big lumps and used to ring the bell? And, go to, and he is, yes, but let me tell you about a man called Jesus. Let me tell you about a man from Nazareth. He didn't go to Bible college. He didn't do an evangelism course. Why? Because his heart and his life has been so profoundly changed by Jesus that he couldn't stop speaking about him. Folks, you don't need to have a BTH in theology. You just need to tell people what Jesus has done for you. They can argue with you about evolution all day long and about the authority of the Bible and all of those things and we get stressed because we don't know the answers to those things. What they can't argue with is, I used to be like this, then Jesus came into my life and now I'm like this. I'm not perfect, but he has changed me. They can't argue with that. He simply shares his story. This is what Jesus has done for me. And I want you to see one more thing. Let's read Leviticus 13 again. Anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes. Their hair must be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face and crowd and clean. As long as they have this disease, this is what I want you to see, they must live alone. They must live outside the camp. 
They must live outside the camp. In other words, if you had this disease called leprosy, you were alone and isolated. Then go back to verse 50 again. In Mark 1. Instead, the leper went out, the former leper, the clean guy, went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town. But look at what it says. But stayed outside in lonely places. I have never noticed this before. I have read this passage probably a hundred times in 20-something years of being a Christian, and I have never noticed this. At the start of the story, where was the man? He was outside. He was isolated. He was lonely. By the end of the story, where's Jesus? He was outside. He was isolated. He was lonely. The man could go into the city. The man could go into the synagogues. The man could go in among the people, but Jesus had to go out of the camp, out of the city. They traded places. I've never noticed this before. This is what I call the great exchange. You see, Jesus didn't just heal the man's skin. He took his place. And Jesus didn't just forgive my sin. He took my place. As we come to communion this morning, that's what I want us to think about. That when Jesus died on the cross, we know that he died for our sin and that is half of the story and that's such a significant part of the story. But I want to tell you something. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just take my sin, he took my place. And on him, he took my sin, my shame, my guilt, my filth, my anger, my lust, my darkness, my addiction, my pain. Jesus didn't just die for me, he died as me. Jesus didn't just die for you, he died as you. That's why we call it substitutionary atonement. A substitute is someone who takes the place of someone else. Instead of you going to the cross of Dan for your sin and your shame and your guilt and your filth and your lust and your greed and all of that stuff, Jesus said, I'm going to take his place. I'm going to take her place. And he absorbed all of your sin into himself and he absorbed the wrath and the judgment of God that should have been yours and he took it upon himself on the cross. That's the great exchange. That's why we come to communion. I want to finish with a story. I think it's appropriate for this Remembrance Sunday. There's a story that during World War I, a Protestant chaplain with the American troops in Italy became a friend of the local Roman Catholic priest. In time, the chaplain moved on with his unit and he was killed. The priest heard of his death and asked the military authorities if the chaplain could be buried in the cemetery behind his church. Permission was granted, but then the priest ran into a problem with his own Catholic church authorities. They were sympathetic, but they said they could not approve the burial of a non-Catholic in a Catholic cemetery. So the priest buried his friend just outside the cemetery fence. Years later, a war veteran who knew what had happened, returned to Italy and visited the old priest. The first thing he went to see was the chaplain's grave. To his surprise, he found the grave inside the fence. Ah, he said, I see you got permission now to bury the body 
in the graveyard? No, said the priest. They told me where I couldn't bury the body, but nobody ever told me that I couldn't move the fence. Jesus moved the fence. That's the good news. That we were outsiders who had no right to come to God. But because he took my sin, my shame, my guilt, my filth, all of that, he died not just for me, he died as me. The fence was moved. And I'm no longer outsider. I'm no longer in the distance. I'm no longer isolated. I am fully within his family. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. He who had never sinned became sin for us so that in him and only in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I want to say this morning to you that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how big you think your issues are, no matter how great your sin is, his grace is greater. His forgiveness is more contagious. And he has moved the fence. And he's saying, will you come in?